0: Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway, because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. And welcome to the dark word. I am your host, Philip. And I am just tickled pink to have Alma Katsu on the show today. Alma is the award-winning author of seven novels. Her latest is The Fervor, a reimagining of the Japanese internment that list called a stunning triumph and was a starred review. And Library Journal called it a must-read for all, not just genre fans, also a starred review. Red Widow, her first espionage novel is a nominee for the Thriller Writers Award for Best Novel. It was a New York Times editor's choice and is in pre-production for a TV series, which I hope we will get to talk about. Alma, hi, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm tickled pink to be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that one just came to my head. Like it was like a last moment, you know, um, uh, I was excited. No, I'm really tickled. So, hey, it's such an honor to have you. Uh, you've, you know, really over the last, I mean, I know you you know your first series of books came out probably in the, uh, you know, 2010-ish area. And I know that really, but since The Hunger, you've been on an incredible streak of books. I I know that in my community, in the horror community and thriller community, people are very excited whenever there's a new Almakatsu release. And I I have a bunch of stuff I want to get to, including some questions from social media, but- Do you have an interesting background besides, I mean, you have an interesting background generally with your 30 years at the CIA, right? But specifically to writing, you have a lot of short story work, which actually surprised me only because I wasn't really aware. And then I also, you know, you had this early trilogy of books. So could you talk about your reach way back, how you first got into publishing, what your first experience was like, and was there anything that happened to you or that you went through in those early experiences that you think provided valuable lessons for what you're doing now?
1: Great question. Let's see if I can reach that far back. Because, you know, part of the issue for me is it was a long run up between when I decided to get back to writing fiction, and when I sold my first book. Mm. Although I don't think that that's very uncommon. Part of it might have been because of the time that this happened, which was quite a while, while ago, it took me 10 years of writing for the my first book to get to the point where it was saleable. And then, of course, I sold that you know, 20, 10 years ago. So that's over 20 years ago. You know, there was no internet per se and uh, you know, communications didn't really quite run at the speed of light like they do now. So things in general took a little bit longer, mm. but again, I don't think it's, it's unheard of and writers should really kind of brace themselves for it. it. It might take you a few years to be able between writing books and making your first sale. It's, it's not an instantaneous thing, unless, you know, there's other routes you can go, of course. But I mean, if you go with a traditional, you want to go with a traditional publisher. You know, I always wanted to be a writer from when I was a little girl, like a lot of writers, you know, as a reader. And so that's sort of what I envisioned, but I didn't know how to become a writer. So while I did work as a journalist for a little while, I ended up going into the intelligence business. Again, not My intention, like really a huge surprise to me and also a huge surprise that I stayed so long. You know, when I had to stop writing because they don't like you, at least back then, especially. They didn't like you doing anything on the outside, even if it didn't have anything to do with intelligence or wouldn't lead people back to you uh, working in intelligence. So I stopped writing and uh, I didn't come back to it until I was 40. And what happened was I got really sick and I won't go into that. I did find out, however, that that is not uncommon, but at around 40, it sort of forced me to reevaluate what I wanted to do with my life. So I thought I wanted to go back to writing even without the expectation that I would be published. Because by that point, you know, I'd worked my way up in my field in intelligence. I was a national intelligence officer and I knew that to hit that kind of level of success, how hard you had to work. And I knew that in my 20s when I was trying to write, uh, you know, my first novels that I didn't put that kind of effort into it. And so uh, I knew at this point that I was really going to have to dedicate myself to it. So I went back to school, got my master's degree. Not that I feel like anybody has to get their master's degree in order to write a novel. You certainly don't, but In intelligence, you get a master's degree just for anything. So I I went back and and did that and just applied myself really hard. I mean, I wrote every day and that's writing every day while I'm, you know, going down to brief the White House and that kind of stuff. Like I would Right at night, as soon as I got home and all weekend and that sort of thing. So anyway, when I say 10 years, it took 10 long years to get my first novel to the point where, you know, publishers would be interested in it. But once that happened, it did move fairly quickly. But, you know, bear in mind, like everybody, I submitted during those 10 years to agents and editor, any editor that I could, you know, get to listen to me. And I got rejected a lot. Sure. You know, that's part of the process until you get to the point where you realize what a book really is going to need to be marketable for the time that you're submitting. It
0: and your were these books that you're talking about now, were this, was this the Taker trilogy or is this uh, The Hunger
1: No, this was The Taker. So 10 years to write one book. Now, I did like pick it up and put it down and I would work on other books during that time. But if anybody's read The Taker, um, you'll realize that it's it's like a really crazy book for a a first time author to try to write. It just technically was very difficult, moves around a lot in times, has POV shifts and all kinds of stuff. So I would keep running into walls where I couldn't quite make the book work, but I didn't know how to fix it. And so I'd go and work on another thing. And meanwhile, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm still working on that problem. And I think I'd come up with a solution. I'd go back, I'd rewrite it, and then something else wouldn't work. And that went on for 10 years.
0: That's amazing. You know, I was talking to um, a previous guest and my friend, Laird Barron, and he, he told me, not even on the podcast, you know, he told me back when, when uh, he was mentoring me. And he said, you know, plan on it taking 10 years. So, you know, to really break through, he said, perseverance is the virtue of any successful writer. You know, he said, it's just, it's just <laughs> going to take a long time. You know, yeah, you'll, you'll have small successes, but you'll also have failures. You'll have lots of rejections. And, but ultimately he said to really, it takes about 10 years. And it's also interesting that you said that you, um, you kind of started at at around 40 cuz i i mean like you i was been writing my whole life but i didn't really i didn't start writing genre fiction until i was in my mid 40s you know a part of me was sort of like you know i'm kind of bummed out right i didn't really start hitting harder hitting it harder when i was younger but then i also re- i came to the realization a while ago that i don't think i could be writing what i'm writing now when i was 30 i think there's a culmination of a lot of things life experience your writing experience, your realizations that you're, you know, the of the kind of dedication you're gonna have to put into it to your point. And I th- I don't think it's all that rare now for people to be starting, you know, as as medicine progresses, I think, you know, the I am a big fan of the 70 is the new 40 model. I get more loose with that as I get older. I'm like, yeah, 80 is the new 40. Come on. <laughs> so you worked in that first book for 10 years, but then you wrote two follow-up books, right?
1: Yeah. Well the taker was actually supposed to be a standalone. And it got a great deal. And Simon & Schuster ended up making it one of their bigger books for the year. And there was a lot of excitement about it. It sold a lot of property of rights overseas, for instance. And so they were interested in whether or not I would do a follow-up. And at that time, trilogies were really big, especially, you know, these sort of dark romantic fantasy trilogies.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, I could see a way to extend the book. So we, I did. I came up with an idea for two more books and both the US and the UK publisher bought on. So that's the good news. The bad news is, and this is, you know, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but these are the types of things that happen to you. And you don't know these things when you're a a brand new author, but, you know, especially for fiction, you want an editor with a lot of experience so they can make your book the best possible book it can be. And at that time, the editor who signed me on the UK side was a powerhouse editor, Kate Elton, and she is the one who did most of the editorial revisions on The Taker. My U.S. editor, a wonderful woman, but she had never done fiction. I was her first fiction acquisition, and then Kate left me two weeks after the book came out in in the U.K. because she became the head of an entire imprint. (laughs) So I can't blame her. But um, I lost my editor, and so I really struggled on the second book, for instance. And I'm sure you've heard this: the second book is the hardest book to write. Because right? the first book, you've had all the time in the world to write it. The second book comes up and you have a deadline, and chances are you don't really know how you were able to write that first book. It's kind of scary. And so, a lot of writers, and certainly I struggled with my second book.
0: It is interesting that you say that because a debut novel, you worked on it for 10 years. And the case with a lot of writers is they write a novel and then you sell that book and you make a two book deal. And it's kind of interesting because Hey, this is great! I just sold this book, and then the publisher is like, "It is great. We're gonna need another book in six months <laughs> or a year, right?" Yeah. And 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 if you don't have something in your back pocket, that could be intimidating. And you know, in screenplay world, there's an old adage: Al- "Always have something in your back pocket." Uh, it was Mike Flanagan. I was listening to Mike Flanagan at an old Stoker con, and he said, "Always have a second script because." if they buy the first one, they're going to say, what's next? What else do you have? So I think it's it's kind of a good idea. Maybe if you can swing it as a writer to have at least an, a couple pitches in your back pocket.
1: I, you know, it's such a weird business and it's changed so much in the 10 or 12 years or so that, I, that I've been in it. You know, when I did sell the first book, two book deals or even three book deals were not that uncommon. Now I think it's pretty rare. Like, uh, you know, usually it's the contract is for, uh, you know, and I'm, I've only been published with traditional publishers. So, you know, the big houses. And now, generally, it's it's a contract for your book and write a first refusal on the next book. You're, it's rare to get a contract for more than one book. Mm-hmm. And it's because the business is so tough right now. And books are having a hard time selling. Uh, just about all books are having, and they don't talk about this, but, you know, what sells today, things just move so fast. And it's so unpredictable. And you can talk to your editor. I mean, I've had three, this is the fourth book with Sally at Putnam, you know, and, and we know each other pretty well and we we have pretty um, candid talks, but it's hard for them to know what they're going to want from you. <laughs> they have to see how your book performs and then see what the market's doing to see whether or not they're going to want. You know, one or two more of the same.
0: Yeah, because it's interesting. And this is something I've just recently been learning because I just, you know, sold a book to a big five for the first time ever. And and so it's been an interesting experience, right? Cause I'm like, oh man, this is way different than <laughs> than what I'm used to. But one of the things that's interesting is there's a, you know, it's a company. So there's a marketing department and a sales department. And and those guys have a lot of say to in the book as well right so if sales is saying hey look you know we can't sell this or marketing is saying you know whatever it is unless the editor uh, is religious about the book um and really willing to push it hard you know that those are the kind of things that may stall you know a sale
1: and and i know that this is kind of confusing sometimes for folks if they haven't been through the experience yet because they may have a book on their hands and they're thinking This is a no brainer. I'm going to be able to sell this because it's just like X, Y, and Z book. And those books all did well, or they were bestsellers, or it's like this TV show. And it's like those books, but here's the problem. They don't necessarily want a book. That's just like every other book. You still have to differentiate yourself in a way. Now that I'm getting involved in Hollywood, I'm seeing a lot more scripts and people are getting passed on left and right. You know, the studios are passing on them because the story doesn't set itself apart at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now, especially with, you can see it more maybe with TV and maybe a little less with with books, but trust me, there's a lot of, lot of books are being published, whether it's from the big five or independent, not even counting self-published books. There are a couple thousand books a week being published. And so you have to be able to separate yourself from the crowd offer people something that's slightly familiar because if it's too different, they won't bite on it. You know, a small audience and see, and that's the other thing. I mean, there's so many parts to this argument, right? We can break it down, but a traditional publishing house just doesn't want to sell a few hundred copies, right? They have to sell thousands of copies, right? Let alone tens of thousands of copies yeah, or say, really right? lucky hundreds of thousands of copies. Right. So they're looking for books that are going to have more wide, you know, mainstream appeal. Whereas a small press can take uh, more of a risk on maybe a, a niche book. So it's very challenging for the writer to come up with an idea that's going to hit all these marks and then to make it stand out, you know, as a piece of prose itself. It's, it's really tough. I am kind of a Debbie Downer, <laughs> if you had not heard this yet, because, you know, I was an intelligence analyst and our motto is truth to power. So I always feel compelled To tell people the truth. I'll try to give it to you as nicely as I can, but it's my job to break things down, to see which facts are the trenchant facts, to try to present those and, and then to give, you know, a a probability score. So, you know, I'm not telling people not to write. I love writing. I understand. But as a writing is one thing, publishing is something else.
0: Yeah. And you hit on something that's interesting. And I've had this inner dialogue myself, which is the The pros and cons of a, you know, we'll call it traditional publisher, big five publisher and an independent publisher, because on one hand, the independent publisher is not most likely not going to have the the sales reach that a traditional publisher would have they're not going to have the marketing team and the sales team you know it's usually a guy or a gal right it's a person but on the other hand you know if you sell hundreds of copies it's fine and it because the risk is so small for that publisher they're not giving you a fifty thousand dollar advance they you know if you're lucky they're giving you a grand and you have more control over the product you probably have more say over what it looks like but you're doing all the heavy lifting yourself on the sales and marketing but if you sell to a big five publisher and you sell a few hundred copies, you know, you're in trouble because the next big five publisher is going to look at your sales record and they're going to say, this person's this author's last book didn't sell. And that's going to be a big strike. So it's a, it's a pick your poison kind of thing, but you know, we do it for the love of writing and we're all artists. So, <laughs> so you hope for the best, but ultimately you got to work hard. You have to be ready to work hard. You know, even if you sell to a big five, like I know you, I, I, I follow you on social media and, uh, and I know how hard you work to promote your books. And, and I'm always liking as much as, and retweeting as much as I can, Thank you. of course, but I, but you know, you do book plates, you do, I mean, you have, you have promotions and that's one of the things that one thing I always try to emphasize to writers is look, you're not handing your book over and then sitting back and like watching the money flow in. You got to get out there and hustle. And figure out creative ways to create awareness, get it to bloggers, get it to reviewers, get it to folk influencers. Yeah. And I think you do a really great job.
1: Oh, thank you. It, it,
0: yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast, go, you know, follow Alma on Twitter and look at some of the things that she does to promote her books, because it's a really good lesson for for new writers.
1: Well, you definitely have to hustle and, you know, everything you, you said is true. So here's again, back to that truth to power thing.
0: I feel like I'm the president of the United States when you say that, because I feel like you're oh. you're telling me that, <laughs> all right, here's where we're at, Mr. President. This is the latest intelligence. And I'm, yeah, so I'm just going to stick with that fantasy while you go ahead and talk.
1: Just for my limited perspective, because that's the thing too. You know, I've never been a big, huge, bestselling author. I've never had, I mean, I, I should take that back. Uh, Simon Schuster did throw a fair amount behind The Taker. And so I did get a little bit of that feel up front, but because I had no experience to judge it against, you know, I really in a lot of ways wasted a lot of that goodwill, which is really sad. You know, so a couple of things happen when you're uh, with a, a big publisher. I, I can't, again, I can't speak to the smaller houses, but with when you're with a big publisher, of the books, and please listen to me when I say that, because we all think, oh, I'm going to be the exception. 99% of the books get very, very little support. There's a marketing team. There's a publishing team. There's normal things that they do for any book. You know, they get it listed in catalogs, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't get a lot of promotion. In the old days, you used to at least get some paper arcs, uh, advanced readers copies that would go out and try to generate some excitement and stuff. But by and large, for most writers, most of the marketing falls and publicity falls on your shoulders. You'll be expected to work with your publishing house. And if they say, I don't want you to do that, that makes you look rinky dink or, you know, that looks stupid or they won't be that blunt, by the way. And you have to read between the lines. (laughs) What are they trying to tell me here? Um... Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think they're calling me stupid. Which just
1: happened to me. So don't don't worry about it. None of us were born knowing how to do all these things. Better to ask the question than to just hide in the corner and wish you had done it differently down the road. So anyway, you're going to have to do a lot of this. And so, you know, like what Phil just said, absolutely true. Find the authors who are most like your book. Not the book you wish you were, but be honest with yourself. The most like your book that have the audiences that you want to have exactly. Follow them. See what they do. Um, if at all possible, befriend them. Go to a reading of theirs. Introduce yourself. Don't just, you know, suddenly pop on their Twitter feed and become their best friend. I mean, do it gradually because there are psychos on, on social media and, you know, anyway. And I've met some, but... <laughs> So, you know, you want to let them know that, you know, you're going to be in their wheelhouse too, right? You're going to be a peer of theirs. And there's often great networking opportunities down the road. You are going to need these people. You're going to be on panels together. Maybe you're going to do promotions together. So you need to think about building audiences, but you also need to see like, what do other people in my field do to promote yourself? There's stuff that certain genres do that other genres don't. And if you do them, you'll look kind of weird (laughs) and give the wrong message. I mean, we could go on all day just about promotion and marketing. And honestly, I don't feel like I'm that good. There's some authors that are excellent, but there's one thing that I find that's very difficult for me because I come from the intelligence community which has a lot of dignity (laughs) and reserve and you're not allowed to make a spectacle of yourself (laughs) in any way, shape or form, but to sell books, you have to make a spectacle of yourself. And it's been really hard for me. Really, really hard.
0: Yeah. You gotta, you gotta put yourself out there. Absolutely. Okay. So you've, you've now kind of written your taker trilogy and then you came out with uh, the hunger and then you came out with the deep and then you have the fervor, which is coming out soon which are all historical fiction, and I believe all historical horror fiction. But then you also have Red Widow, which is sort of your spy novel. I would love to hear uh, some of your advice that you could give to writers on researching uh, for historical fiction. And one of the things that you said, and you said in an email to me, which I thought was really interesting, is you said you wanted to talk about how the story can guide research and not the other way
1: around, which
0: I'm really interested to hear about.
1: Sure. Let me just preface it by saying, you know, please, anyone who's listening, just take out of what I'm going to say, what's useful for you and disregard the rest because I'm really insufferable when it comes to research, because this is what I did for 30 years. And you know, that's basically what intelligence analysis is, is research, but it's very structured And you learn a lot. And, you know, I was a national intelligence officer. I worked for the RAND Corporation. I used to run huge research projects. So I'm very opinionated when it comes to research. But I've talked about this and people have gotten really mad at me. I was on this one panel with a woman who was a a scientist and she looked at me and she said, I never would have liked to work for you. (laughs) You know, I've worked some really tough research projects with huge, huge data loads And I'm here to tell you, you know, people do, even professional researchers, get paralyzed in the face of all the work they have to do. So when I wrote The Hunger, when I went on tour for it, at every stop, at least one person would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I want to write a historical fiction myself, but I just can't seem to get past the research stage. And in talking to them, I realized... You know, there's a lot of people who don't do research, right, for their day job. Maybe they learned how to write research papers in high school. The last one they did might have been in college. It's been a while. They're rusty and they're very nervous about it. So I tried to come up and I developed a workshop actually for how to think about doing your research for a novel. That's sort of different. Cause you know, when you go to conferences, like I'm a member of the historical novel society, they love me. ha, ha, ha. But you know, you hear, you go to these workshops and you hear over and over again, how these people like lovingly throw themselves down these rabbit holes, chasing things forever in the hopes that some interesting little tidbits going to come up, that's going to spark an idea, you know, mm-hmm. A whole subplot, if not a whole plot of a book, and I just want to slap them because you can't do a research project that way, right? You start a research project with your, your question what is the central question I'm trying to figure out? You have to know before you go into the research, so that's kind of the key thing. A lot of people think I'm gonna let history tell me what my story should be about. I had a friend who literally posted a picture of a stack of, there had to be hundreds of books still in their wrappers from Amazon that she ordered because she woke up one day and she decided she wanted to write a World War II book and she didn't know anything about World War II. So she just ordered all these books and she was going to read them. And that was going to tell her what her novel should be about. And that, that, okay. If you have all the time in the world, go at it, man. But that is not how you do a research project. So That's my first thing is don't think history is going to tell you. And that's not what a novel is about, right? A novel is about characters and it has a theme and it's a story you're trying to tell. So you should have a feeling in you and then maybe find the historical setting that it should be in.
0: Before you go on your next, because I want to address th- something real quick. You said, uh, know what your question is. And so can you give an example of what you mean by that? Like for one of your novels, for example, like what was the question that you, you know, that you followed when when you started doing the research for one of the books?
1: Well, so for Hunger, the, hunger, the core question is what turns a man into a monster? Interesting. And I knew that I wanted it to be about the Donner Party. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing I'm going to say is, uh, and I don't talk about this a lot, but we have been open about it, is that the hunger, the deep, and the fervor are projects that I work with a partner. I work with a company called Glass Town Entertainment. And Glass Town is really two women. They're both YA authors, big best-selling YA authors. One of them is Lauren Oliver, and the other one is Lexa Hillier. And they used to be editors with Penguin, I think it was. And they both left and they decided to start this business. And they're, they're book packagers. They come up with ideas for books. Almost all of them are YA books. And then they find a writer to write them. Wow. They, so they actually came up with the idea of the Donner Party. Interestingly, I had written stories about the Donner Party before, but um, they approached my agent and asked if I would want to work with them. And I said I I would only partner with them. So it's a complete partnership. We develop the ideas together. I write the books. They usually do a first pass through with the editing. And then it goes to uh, our editor, Sally Kim at Putnam. Really what their role is, is to sell the film rights because they have a whole arm that is Hollywood facing and they have a really high success rate selling film rights. So that's the reason why I partnered with them. That's
0: really interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They had the idea of the Donner party and then we worked together to figure out what, what's the story there. So what usually happens is, um, you know, we, we try to think of a big disaster. (laughs) Sure. And those are so interesting. Yeah. there's that hook it's a little bit of what people know already you know that draws them in I've heard of the Donner Party oh I Mm -hmm. love the Titanic Mm
0: -hmm. and then you try
1: to give them something new so then usually the second stage is I do quick research like two weeks tops and really understand the historical event and all of the idiosyncrasies around it that make good hooks for a story then we'll do the plotting around it so that's how it works for me but what's built into that is I don't mean to be a modest, but I mean, I ran a research lab. I can research very fast, so within two weeks, less than two weeks, usually I've done that and broken it down the historical event down, and I've written a lot of books, so I understand what you need to make a good book, what kind of characters, what kind of drama conflict, all that mm-hmm.
0: kind of stuff so that's interesting so if someone if a, if a writer was listening to this i would i, I think the takeaway is you know obviously are not necessarily go find a Hollywood, you know, partner to, but but I think the takeaway might be is uh, know your question and your question is almost thematic. It's more thematic, right. Than anything. So have a, have a question that you can focus your research on and then maybe even, you know, and have a, have a hook.
1: I mean, one thing I just wanted to point out, I know in some ways this could be kind of maddening for listeners, especially if they're just starting out, Because, you know, when you're starting out, you definitely should be focusing on story and not the business end of things. Don't worry about, is this going to sell and all that kind of stuff. And yet I'm throwing that in your face. And I realize that's frustrating, but you really have to force yourself not. And I think this is a mistake that many, many, many writers do. I certainly did in the beginning where you're chasing the sale before you really have a book to sell. Right.
0: One of the things that I realized writing a historical story, uh, which was just an unbelievable amount of work. I think I I did three weeks and I'm not a professional researcher. I think it was three weeks of intensive reading and research and looking at maps and reading firsthand accounts and all this other stuff. What um, caught me off guard was once I was like, okay, I know my story. I have all the research. I, I know where I'm going to do. And then as I was writing it, I was like, things come up and you're like, well, wait a minute what kind of ammo would be in this gun? Or <laughs> we know literally at one point someone pulled their shirt off and I was like, what kind of underwear did they wear during then? And, yes. and things like, and you just have to go shit. I got to go back and I got to research more as I was, because all these things, what what did they call their shoes? What kind of shoes did they wear? It's amazing how much stuff pops up when you're doing a historical piece as you're writing it.
1: Absolutely. So I do a ton of spot research My pattern usually is in that first phase, you know, when I think about what's the story about and the setting. So, for instance, with the Titanic. You know, there is a mountain, a metric ton of research. Oh, yeah. So I, in order to limit it in the beginning, I knew my biggest challenge would be the actual ships themselves, the layout and all that kind of stuff. So I generally limit myself to two reference books in the beginning. And then, you know, and identify, you know, what are the biggest holes in my knowledge, focus my research on that. And then once you start writing, I do spot research along the way. And I think this is where most people say I fall down the rabbit hole because like, like you said, with the shoes and the underwear and stuff, you know, you start thinking, oh, well, what did they call it? And then the next thing they know, they've lost two days because they're reading everything there is to know about underwear. And, and right. while that is hugely entertaining, it is a huge waste of time and may right. end up putting a lot of needless exposition in your story. So you got to be a little ruthless with yourself and cut yourself off. So, you know, you just have to be honest with yourself.
0: Yeah. You could do a couple hours of research that could be one sentence or or less, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. just like, oh, you know, he looked down at his brogues, you know, or whatever. And like that, yeah, that, (laughs) yeah, that was was an hour of my life. (laughs) Um, We're already over, which is awesome. But I also, we got to, I got to move quickly. Anything else that you want to make sure you get across to writers in the, when it comes to uh, researching for historical fiction?
1: There's so much we could talk about, but there's one point, and that is be careful about using the same reference sources that everybody else who writes on the subject write about. So a couple years ago, Jojo Moyes, who you may know, wrote a book called, I think it's Giver of Stars, which was about the mobile librarians back in the, I forget, depression or something, who rode horseback and delivered books to people because people couldn't come to the libraries, and there were so few libraries. Well, she got sued, I think the day the book came out, by a writer who had written on the same subject. And if you read the case, it's very interesting because they had the same characters.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: What would happen is they used the same source materials. And those source materials referenced real people who were these types, and they didn't change the types. So they did end up writing very similar books.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really interesting because yeah, you can get you in trouble if you're uh, you know you want to be careful whatever even basing your own characters too much on real people. I you know I think use the use the circumstances and use the use the historical context, but I'd be careful. I'd create your own characters from scratch. So okay, so I'm going to take a couple of these questions that come in from writers. Uh, This guy uh, Joshua Nagel on Twitter he asked. what was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome as a writer?
1: That's a tough question. Probably my ego, which is probably true for a lot of writers, especially in the beginning. You write something and you think it really sounds snazzy and you think it's great. And if you're lucky enough to get an agent or that or to move on to the editor phase, they're going to come back and they're going to tell you, cut this. This doesn't work. This character comes off to such and such. And you know, your first urge is to be defensive. I did that for a reason. Can't you see my beautiful prose? Didn't I? But right. what they're really telling you is it's not working. It's not working. And and sometimes you, you can override that. But for the most part, you really would be doing yourself a service if you at least considered what they're telling you. You know, books are really more collaborative than people would have you imagine.
0: And I think an important takeaway from that is also when, when someone gives you feedback, don't dismiss it out of hand because even if, even if you don't agree with it, think about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, it's a matter of sort of nudging your subconscious to creating a better solution that, you know, that just hadn't occurred to you at first. That's what I find over and over again. It it always ends up making, the big ones always end up making the story better.
0: Uh, Alexandra Montenegro uh, says, any advice or favorite methods for building suspense in a story?
1: Sure, I, 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 I hate to keep saying this, but I actually taught a workshop on this for ten years. Wow! Um, basically, what you do is you're layering different types of conflict and suspense, in particular. You you got to think of suspense as like the gasoline that keeps the engine going of your story, right? People keep reading because they form hypotheses in their head of what's going on, and they keep turning the pages to see if they're right. So if you think of that, like they're a cat and you're trying to get them to follow this piece of string across the floor, right? You've got to think of what's your strategy for pulling that string. And usually it's a multi-layered kind of process. There's different little threads that maybe you're going to work into your story. That's, you know, little red herrings and you take one red herring away, but, oh, you planted the seed for another red herring and they start following that. A lot of it depends on the exact type of story that you're, that you're writing But that's the thing. And when I realized this, which was fairly early in my career, it made a huge difference. The thing I can't stand is when you read a book and you can tell when it's written too hastily or the author doesn't have the chops, but it's what I call a one trick pony, right? There's one thing that's the central question of the story and And the writer just keeps hammering that one question and you don't ever get anything else coming in. And then the story is just like, you know, it's just like a yak in your ear. It's not, Entertaining to read anymore,
0: right? Be honest, Alma. Come on. Um, I think that's really fascinating, that, and I think layers is such an important thing because sometimes you know when you're reading a, a suspense story, and to your point, it's a like the main question is okay. Let's just call it like who killed the butler or whatever. And but also it's like okay, but also this person has an interesting relationship with you know, their ex who has kind of been lingering around the fringes. Like what's that all about? Is that kind of, is that kind of what you mean by, by adding layers, like having maybe a couple different things going on to keep it, keep it interesting for the reader?
1: Sure. But there are different types of things. So this is where the workshop comes in. So you have mm-hmm. your central question. You usually have something that's interior to your protagonist that's driving them. It's usually like a psychological thing. There could be an exterior thing thing that's a constraint that's forced upon them that they have no control over. So let's say a sick spouse or, you know, something like that, where not only are they trying to, to figure out what's going on to answer this main problem that's hanging over their head, but they've got to deal with these other things. And then the fourth thing is what we call act of God or intransient, which are the little things that just happen. Let's say you have to go across town in a half an hour, or this person that you need to talk to is going to get on a train. And as you're trying to make it across town, all these things kind of get in your way. You can't get a taxi, shoelace breaks, GPS isn't working, whatever. And it's by layering these different things. So this points back to something that I forgot to get back to earlier. When we were talking about, sometimes when you're younger, you may not really have all the tools you need in your toolbox in order to write a really deep, rich, satisfying novel. And that was absolutely true. I mean, that's the one reason why I went into the intelligence business, because when I was in my twenties, people said, you know, you don't have any life experience. What can you possibly write a novel about? And when you're in your twenties and people say that to you, you get all huffy and pissed off, but it's true. (laughs) I'm not saying there aren't 20 year olds who've been through a lot of shit, and maybe can write a great novel. That's fine. But most of us can't. And one of the things I learned in the intelligence business is psychology and what drives people. I mean, a lot to the point where now when people, the, the feedback that you get, the, the critiques and the reviews in my books usually say this deep insight of human nature. Well, I got it from intelligence work because you really have to understand what motivates another person you know, to sell out their country, to sell lies, to to become even to work in intelligence. It's a tough business. And so you get really good at reading people. And I couldn't have done that in my twenties. You know, it took me into my 50s to be able to do that. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. By layering all these different things, these are the things that contribute to the person your protagonists is, your any of your characters are, right? You have to sort of see their lives in those three dimensions. And then you're putting that all together in a story.
0: So we got to go, but I want to before, I'd always like to end these conversations with books that you would recommend writers uh, read that you think are are great sort resources for for becoming a writer, for becoming a, a better writer.
1: Uh, Ursula Le Guin had a book called Steering the Craft, which I think is being reissued that is a great nuts and bolts book for new writers that really explain things like what is point of view and what are the different tenses of verbs. And I know that sounds fundamental, but these are the kinds of questions, especially when you're starting out that might trip you up a little bit, but she breaks it down really well and gives a lot of exercises to help really nail it home. And um, I'll just leave it at that. Cause the other ones I can think of are probably ones everybody has already heard about. And then in terms of great books that are instructional, well, any Donna Tart is pretty damn good. Her first two books, The Secret History and The Little Friend, are amazing. Sarah Waters' book, The Little Stranger, there was a time when I would read that at least once a year. Because I think ghost stories are incredibly hard to write, and that's one of the few really successful ghost stories, at least in my opinion. Uh, I'll tell you, for the workshop that I teach on Building Conflict, Child 44 by um, Rob Tom Smith, Tom Rob Smith, Smith is his last name. He's a TV writer and showrunner now, but he was a novelist. And that book is amazing. You, if you want to go through and analyze it for those layers of conflict, that's the book that I use as an example.
0: Well, Alma, thank you so, so much. This has been just incredible. And uh, I've I've learned so much. I'm over here taking notes. (laughs) So... (laughs) So again, thank you for, for being on and, uh, I appreciate it and good luck with the fervor. When does the fervor come out?
1: Comes out April 26th.
0: April 26th. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm, I think I already have it pre-ordered, so I'm excited. Yay, thank uh, you. All right, Alma, thank you so much again and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper, Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. AudioHopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. AudioHopper. Real news. Narrated. In the App Store.